Chapter 56 of Crips the Carrier by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 56 Fatal Accident to the Carrier. Now that little maid, who with such strength alike of mind and body had opened the paternal gate and then bewailed her prowess, happened to be the especial favorite of her good Aunt Esther. Therefore, no sooner had the carrier begun his eventful homeward course, as heretofore related, than Eddie, who loved a forest walk and felt rather dull without Zachary, took Peggy's fat red hand and, after a good tea with Susanna, set forth for an evening stroll, to gather flowers and hear the birds sing. Almost before they had got well into the wooded places, Peggy shrank away from a black timber shed, partly overhung by trees. Peggy not go there, Aunt Eddie, she said. Goose in there, a great white goose. A ghost, you little goose, answered Esther, laughing, for still there was good sunset. Come and show me, I want to see a ghost. No, 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 cried the child, pulling backward and struggling as hard as she had struggled with the gate. Peggy see white goose in a black hole there all day. Then, Peggy, stop here while I go and look. You won't be afraid to do that, will you? Running bravely up to the hole in the boards, Esther saw, to her great amazement, the form, perhaps the corpse, of a man. Stretched at length on the ground inside, it lay too much in the dark for the face to be seen, and the dress was so swaddled with netting and earthy that little could be made of it. A torn strip of cambric that once had been white lay partly on the body and partly on the board. Esther caught it up, and she remembered having ironed something of this shape for somebody once who was going to be examined. She knew where to look for the mark, and there she saw in small letters T. Hardenow. Surprised as she was, she did not lose her wits or courage, as she used to do. She ran to the door of the shed, tried the padlock, and finding it fastened, as she had feared, made haste to the grain house, and seized a bunch of keys. Not one of them truly was born with the lock, but one was soon found to serve the turn. Then Esther pushed back the creaking door and timidly gazed round the shadowy shed. She was quite alone now, for her little niece, with short sobs of terror, had set off for home. In the light admitted by the open door, young Esther described a poor, miserable thing, helpless, still as a log and senseless, yet to her faithful heart the idol of her adoration. Gently, step by step, she stole to the prostrate form and knelt down softly and reverently touched it. She feared to seem to take advantage of a helpless moment, and yet a keen joy mixed with terror shone in the eagerness of her eyes. He is alive, I'm sure of that, she said to herself, as she pulled forth a pair of strong scissors which she always carried, he is alive, but very, very nearly dead. What wretches can have treated him like this? In two minutes, Hardnow was free from every cord and throng of bondage. His lax arms fell at his sides. His legs, that had saved his life by kicking, slowly sank back to their native angles, like a lobster's claw untied, and his small and dismally empty stomach quivered almost invisibly. Oh, he is starving, or downright starved, cried Esther, watching his white lips, which trembled with some glad memory of suction, 
and stiffened again to some Anglican dream. After all, I have blamed other folk quite amiss. He hath courted himself away from his victuals to give way to his noble principles. But how could he lock himself in? The Lord must have sent a bad angel to tempt him, and then to turn the key on him. Before she had finished this reasoning process, the girl was halfway towards the cot of Tychus, her heart outweighing her mind according to all true feminine proportions. She ran swiftly upon Susanna, sitting in the dusky kitchen and pondering over a very slow fire the cookery of the children's supper. These good young children never failed to go to see the pigs fed, and down at the styes they all were at this moment, with no victuals come, and the pigs all squeaking, because the pig-master was not at home. This was most sad, and the children felt it. Nevertheless, they bore it, knowing that their own pot was warming, that they too might have squeaked if they had known that out of their own pot Aunt Eddie was stealing half the meat and all the little cobs of jelly. It was as fine a pot of stuff as ever Susanna Cripps had made, for she did not hold at all with fattening the pigs and starving her own children, and she argued most justly, while Esther all the while was ladling all the virtue out. Eddie had never been known to do anything violent or high-handed, yet now, without entering into even the very shortest train of reasoning, away she went swifter than any train, bearing in her right hand the best dresser jug, filled with the children's tidbits of nurture, and in her left hand flourishing Susanna's own darling silver wedding spoon. Mrs. Leviticus longed to rush in chase of her, but ere her slowly startled nerves could send a necessary tingle to her ruminating knees, the girl was out of sight, and for her vestige lingered naught but a very provoking smell of soup. Now in so advanced a stage of the world's existence, and of this narrative, it is needful, judicious, or even becoming to describe, spoonful by spoonful, however grateful, delicious, and absorbing, the process of administering and receiving soup. To give and take is said by people of large experience in life to be about the latest and most consummate lesson of humanity, coming even after that extreme of wisdom which teaches us to grin and bear it. But in the present trifling instance, two young people very soon began to be comparatively at home with the subject. The opening of the eyes in all countries and creatures is done a good deal later than the opening of the mouth, the latter being essential, the former quite a fortuitous proceeding. After six spoonfuls, as counted by Esther, Hard now opened both his eyes. After two or three more, he knew where he was, and when he had swallowed a dozen and a bonus, scarcely any of his wits were wanting. Still Esther, for fear of a relapse, went on, though her hand trembled dreadfully when he sat up, with his poor bones creaking sadly, and tried to be steady upon her arm, but was overbalanced by his weight of brain. Instead of shrieking or screaming, she took advantage of this opportunity, and his bony chin dropping afforded the first opening towards his interior. To put it briefly, he quite came round, and after twenty spoonfuls vowed, with the concise rushing of the movement into the arms of common sense, that never could he fast again, and after thirty were absorbed and beginning to assimilate, he gazed at Esther's smiling eyes, 
and saw the clearest and truest solution of his postulates on celibacy. Esther dropped her eyes in terror and made him drink the dregs and bottom with a convert's zealous gulp, and as it happened, this was wise. If any malignant persons charge him with having sold for a mess of pottage man's noblest birthright, celibacy, let every such person be corded up at the longest possible date after breakfast and the shortest before dinner, or rather, alas, before dinner-time, let him stay corded and rolling about in a hog-house, as long as roll he can, which never would approach Mr. Hardnow's cycle. Let him throughout his whole period, instead of eating, expect to be eaten, and then, with a wolf in his stomach, if he has one, let him loose his wits, if he has any, and then let a lovely girl come and free him, and feed him, and cry over him, and regard him, with his clothes at their very worst, and cakes of dirt in his eyes and mouth, as the imperial Jove in some dictane cavern dormant, and then as the light and new life flow back, and the power of his heart awakes, let there manifestly accrue thereto a better, gentler, and sweeter heart, timid even of its own pulse, and ashamed of its own veracity, and then, if he takes all this unmoved, why, let him be corded up again, and nobody come to deliver him. Esther only smiled and wept at her patient's ardent words and impassioned gratitude. She knew that between them was a great gulf fixed, and that the leap across it seldom was a happy landing, and when poor Hardnow fell back, in the weak reaction of a heart more fit for pain than passion, she knelt at his side and nursed and cheered him, less with the air of a corded maiden than of a careful handmaid. In the end, however, this feeling, like most of those which are adverse to our wishes, was prevailed upon to subside, and Esther, although the least revolutionary and longest established stock in England, that of the genuine Cripses, whose name originally, no doubt, Chrysippus, indicates the possession of a golden horse, Eddie Cripps, finding that the heart of her adored one had, in Splinter's opinion, a perilous fissure requiring change of climate, consented at last, having no house of her own, to come down from the tilt and go to Africa. For Hardnow, as he grew older and able to regard mankind more largely, came out from many of the narrow ways, which, like the lanes of Beckley, satisfy their final cause by leading into one another. With the growth of his learning, his candor grew, and he strove to bind others by his own strap and buckle, as little as he offered to be bound by theirs. Therefore, when two of his very best friends made a bona fide job of it, and being unable to think their thoughts out, got it done by deputy and sank to infallible happiness, Thomas Hardnow pulled up and set his heels into the ground of common sense, like a horse at the brink of a quarry pit, and the field of reason, rich and generous, opened its gates again to him. Herein he cut no capers, as so many of the wilder spirits did, but made himself ready for some true work and solid advantage to his race, and so, before any university mission or plough and Bible enterprise, Hardnow set forth to open a track for commerce and civilization, and to fight the devil and slavery in the rich, rude heart of Africa. Besides his extraordinary gift of tongues, he had many other qualifications, the witness of his legs and stomach, 
his quiet style of listening to that so that even a nigger need not be snubbed, his magnificent freedom from humor, an element fatal to stern convictions, and last but not least, as he said to Eddie for a clinching argument, his wife's acquaintance with the carrying trade. Happy exile, how much better than home misery it is, but the house of Cripps sent forth another member into banishment, with little choice or chance of much felicity on his part. As there are woes more strong than tears, so are their crimes beyond the lash. When the doings of Leviticus were brought to light and shown to be unsuccessful, a council of Cripses was held in his hog-house, and a stern degree passed to expatriate him. Tychus was offered his fair say, and did his very best to defend himself, but the case from the first was hopeless. If he had wronged any other parish than Beckley, or even any other as well, there might have been some escape for him. Cruelty, cowardice, treason high and low, perjury to his own elder brother, an eternal disgrace to his birthplace. There was not a word in the mouth of any one half bad enough to use to him. The carrier rose and said all he could say for the sake of the many children, but weighty with piety as he was, he could not stem the many fountain torrent of the Cripsic wrath. The pigs of Leviticus were divided among all the nephews and nieces and cousins, ere ever a creditor got a hock rope or a flick whip ready, and Tychus himself, unhoused, unstyed, unlarded, and unsmocked, wandered forth with his business gone, like a Garadine swineherd void of swine. For years and years that fine old hog farm was the haunt of rats and rabbits, never a grunt or squeak of porker, ringing or rung eloquently, shook the fringe of ivied shade, or jarred the acorn in its cup, until a third son arose and grew up to Zachary Cripps hereafter. All the neighborhood lay under a cloud of fear and sadness because of what Luke Sharp had done, not to others, but to himself. Luke Sharp, the greatest of all lawyers, so the affrighted woodman says, may and must, alas, be seen at certain moments of the forest moon, rising on horseback from the black pool where his black life ended, gaining the shore with a silent bound, and galloping, with his arm held forth as straight as any signpost, to the nook of dark lane where he smote his son, and then to the ruined hut wherein he imprisoned the fair lady, and then to the rotting shed in which he courted and starved the great Oxford scholar. Whether for the assertion of the law Luke Sharp is allowed by some evil power thus to revisit the glimpses of the moon, or whether he lies in silent blackness, ignorant of evil, Sure it is that no one cares to stay beyond the fall of dusk in that part of the forest. But as soon as the lawyer's wife and son, by virtue of the popular mark, had found and quietly buried his disappointed corpse, they made the very best of a broken business as cheerfully as could be hoped for. Each of them sighed very heavily at times, especially when they were almost certain of hearing again, round the corner or downstairs, a masterful and very memorable tread. Therefore, with what speed they might, they let their fine old cross-duck house, and fleeing all low courtesy, unpleasant remark and significant glance, took refuge under the quiet roof of Kit's Aunt Peggy, near High Wycombe, where he had hoped to lodge and woo his timid forest angel. 
here Kit found tardy comfort and recovered health quite rapidly by writing his own dirge in many admirable meters, till being at length made laureate of a strictly local paper at a salary of nil per annum and some quarts of ale to stand, he swung his cloak and lit his pipe in the style of better days. From those whom his father had wronged so deeply he would accept no help whatever, much as they desired to show their sense of his good behavior, and when the second best ambition of his life arrived by coach, that notable dog, Pablo, if Christopher could have sniffed lightest scent of Beckley or shot over in the black dog wrinkles of his nostrils, the odds are ten to one that Oxford never would have sighed as all through the October term she did at the loss of her finest badgerer. In spite of all this obstinacy, three people were resolved to make him come round and be comfortable, settled, and respectable. To this they brought him in the end and made him give up fugitive pieces, sonnets, stanzas to a left-hand glove, and epitaphs on a cenotaph. The squire and Russell and Grace could not compose their own snug happiness without providing that Kit should be less miserable than his poetry. So they married him to a banker's daughter and, better still, put him in the bank itself. The loyalty of Mrs. Fermitage to her distinguished husband's memory was never disturbed by any knowledge of that fatal codicil. Poor Mrs. Sharp, as she slowly recovered from the sad grief wrought by greed, more and more reverently cherished her great husband's high repute. She rejoined him in a better world, or at least she set forth to do so, without any knowledge of the blow he had given to her son's head and her own heart. Kit, like a man, concealed that outrage, and, like a good son, listened to his departed father's praises. But in her heart the widow felt that some of these might be imperiled if that codicil turned up. Long time she kept it in reserve as a thunderbolt for Joan Fermitage. But Pablo's arrival improved her feelings, and so did the banker's daughter. And finally, on Kit's wedding day, with a sigh and a prayer, she took advantage of a clear fire and a rapid draft, and the codicil flew through the chimney pot. As a lawyer's daughter, she revered such things. In the same capacity, she knew that now it could make no great practical difference for Grace was quite sure of her good aunt's money. And again, as a widow and mother, she felt what a stain must be cast on the name she loved best if this little document ever came to light other than good firelight. But why should Esther have no house of her own, as darkly hinted above, so as to almost compel her to descend from tilt to tent? The reason is not far to seek, and he who runs may read it without running out of Beckley. Cripps the carrier now being past the middle milestone of man's life and seeing every day more and more the gray hairs on his horse's tail, lowered his whip in a shady place and let his reins go slackly and pulled his crooked sixpence out and could not see to read it, and yet the summer sun was bright in the top of the bushes over him. I fear I must. I see no way out of him, Zachary said to his lonely self. Eddie is as good as gone already. Her cannot stand out again that there celibacy, and none else understandeth the frying pan. The Lord knows how I have fought against the womanses, seeing all as I has seen, and better I might have done if I must come to it. 
many a time in the last ten year, better at least for the brown, white, and yellow, though the woman is brought might have shattered him again. After all, Mary might be a deal worse, though I have a felt some doubt concerning her of her tongue. But her hath a proper respect for me in a forty puns to Oxford Bank. If her mother speaketh right of her, and the squire hath given me a new horse to come on when so Dobbin beginneth to wear out, therefore his domestics hath first claim, though I'd sooner drive Dobbin than ten of em. What shall us do now? Whatever shall us do? Zachary Cripps pulled off his hat in a slow perspiration of suspense, for if he once made up his mind, there would be no way out of it. He looked at his horse with a sad misgiving, both on his own account and Dobbin's. The marriage of the master might wrong the horse, and the horse might no more be the master's. Suddenly a bright idea struck him, a bar of sunshine through the shade. Thou shalt settle it, Dobbin, he cried, leaning over and stroking his gingerly loins. It concerneth thee most, or leastways quite as much. Never hath any man had a better horse. The will of the Lord takes the strength out of all of us, but he leaveth and addeth to the wisdom therein. Dobbin, thou zeest things as never man can tell of. Now, if thou waggest thy tail to the right, I will, and so be to the left, I won't. Mind what thou doest now. Call upon thy wisdom, Nag, and give thy master honestly the sense of thy discretion. With a settled mind and no disturbance, he awaited a delivery of Dobbin's tale. A fly, settled on the white foam of the harness, on the off side of his ancient horse. Away went his tail with a sprightly flick at it, and Cripps accepted the result. The result was the satisfaction of Mary's long and faithful love for him, and the happy continuance, in the woodland roads, of the loyal race and unpretentious course of Cripps the Carrier. The End End of Chapter 56 Recording by Keith Salas End of Cripps the Carrier by Richard Doddridge Blackmore